What do we pray for on Rosh Hashanah? That's the question Rabbi Harold Kushner, Zichronali Vracha, one of the great thinkers of conservative Judaism and of popular theologians, one of my teachers, once asked a group of rabbis. Rabbi Kushner passed away last April, so I've been thinking a lot about his teachings since then. And as I was doing so, I was reminded specifically of this question. My immediate impulse was as it was then. We pray for about five hours. I'm pretty sure that's not what Rabbi Kushner had in mind. And yet, here we are in the midst of what is a rather long prayer experience. And so the question remains, what is it that we're praying for? What do we think prayer is going to do? I shudder to think that as we will recite later this morning the words of Unatana Tokef, Mi Yichya Mi Yamut, who will live and who will die, Mi Ba Eish, who by fire, or Mi Ba Maim, who by water, Umi Ba Magifa, and who by plague, we would imagine that our words could somehow influence God's decree. Who really believes that? Rabbi Kushner certainly did not. In fact, that's why he wrote his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. He wrote it almost immediately after the death of his son at age three, which occurred just hours after the birth of his daughter. His thesis, according to the New York Times, and for those that have read the book, was rather straightforward. It becomes much easier to take God seriously as the source of moral values if we don't hold God responsible for all the unfair things that happen in the world. Rabbi Kushner also wrote, I don't know why one person gets sick and another does not, but I can only assume that some natural laws which we don't understand are at work. I cannot believe, he says, that God sends illness to a specific person for a specific reason. I do not believe in a God who has a weekly quota of malignant tumors to distribute or consults his computer to determine who deserves one most or who can handle it best. The problem is that we as a community have come to think of prayer as asking God to give us something, to do something for us. And our lived experience has taught us that we seldom get what we pray for. So we don't pray. Did you know that according to a recent Agnes Reed Institute study, only 36% of Canadians pray at least once or twice a month, including nearly all evangelicals, three-quarters of Muslims, frequent prayer is common among Hindus and Sikhs, less so for Roman Catholics and Protestants, and the least likely of all Canadians to pray on a regular basis are Jews, 32%. There are many reasons for this. We have been brought up in a Western, liberal, rationalistic, scientific culture. We're not sure if or what we believe about God. Further complicating those challenges 
Are the images of religion and religious people that we see these days in the news or in other media tend to be in the extreme? If that's what it means to be religious, we say to ourselves, feh, who needs it? And when confronted with a world that is turned upside down through polarization, plague, war, climate change, and the like, the question, does God exist, let alone does God hear and answer prayer, raise even more doubt. But mostly, even for those of us that may be proficient in Hebrew or might have some understanding of the theology of the prayer book, we are confused and uncomfortable because we're not aware of what it really means to pray. It's not that we don't have a desire to pray. It's just, as Rabbi Kushner once observed, North American Jews don't know how to pray. We know how to attend synagogue. We know how to stand, how to resume our seats. We know how to join a responsive reading. We may even know how to listen to a sermon, how to participate, especially in the Kiddush, that we've got down pat. But we don't know how to talk to God in prayer. Many of us might think that we spend all these hours here asking for God for things, begging, petitioning, petitioning God to give us all sorts of things. But the truth is, if you really pay attention to the Maksor, in all the time we spend here in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we make very few specific requests. Prayer is not bribery. And when we think it is, that's when we lose faith in its power to transform our lives. That's why our tradition teaches us that there are things for which we may pray for and things for which we may not. Matters that are within our control, we may not pray for. The idea that God can somehow be coerced to intervene in matters that are within our control are brachot levatalot, the definition of prayers of vanity, of emptiness. We cannot pray, for, an ex for example, for a business deal to be successful if we've not done our preparation. We may not pray for, pray for a good grade in school if we've not studied. There's an old joke that's derived from this idea. You've probably heard it before. The hurricane is coming. The floods are coming. The sheriff comes and knocks on people's door, telling them, begging them to leave. When he gets to Rachel's door, she warmly greets him and says, Sheriff, it's okay. I've been a pious woman my entire life. God will save me. The hurricane hits the coast, the flood comes, and the sheriff returns, this time in a boat. Rachel, get in. It's time to go. She's now on the second floor of her house, and she's leaning out the window, and she says to the sheriff, Sheriff, I've been a God-fearing woman all my life. God will save me. The waters continue to rise. This time, she's on the roof. And the sheriff comes back with a helicopter and drops a ladder down to her and shouts down, Rachel, get on the ladder. It's now or never. To which Rachel responds, God will save me. You know what happens. Rachel dies. And she stands before God 
before judgment, before God, and she's bewildered. God, I've done everything you've asked of me. I've studied Torah, I've prayed, I've followed mitzvot, I strove to be a person of chesed, of kindness and compassion. Why is it you didn't save me? Rachel, replies God, what are you talking about? First I sent the sheriff to your door, then I sent him in a boat, then I sent him on a helicopter. All you had to do was go. It's a cute joke, but it contains a profound truth that is also expressed in the Torah. In Parshat Vayishlach, Yaakov is preparing to reunite with his brother Esav. Yaakov, you'll remember, stole the birthright and fled to Haran. Now, 20 years later, he is returning. He's returning to Eretz Israel, and he learns that his brother Esav is coming to greet him with 400 armed men. He thinks that Esav is still bearing his grudge and wants to kill him. So Yaakov sends emissaries to his brother with gifts. Then he prepares a defensive perimeter, dividing the camp in two, and only then does he turn to God in prayer for God's protection. Rashi, in reflecting on the order of Yaakov's actions, diplomacy, defense, and then prayer, makes this point abundantly clear. One may only pray to God after they have done all that is reasonably possible in their circumstances for themselves. Or as my mother Aleha Shalom used to say, God helps those who help themselves. Consider this excerpt of a prayer written by Rabbi Jack Reamer that appears in many conservative and other prayer books. We cannot pray to you to end starvation, for there is food enough for all if only we would share it. We cannot merely pray for prejudice to cease, for we might see the good in all that lies before our eyes if only we would use them. We cannot merely pray root out despair, for the spark of hope already awaits within the human heart for us to fan it into flame. We must not ask of you, O God, to take the task that you have given us. We cannot shirk, we cannot flee away, avoiding obligation forever. Therefore, we pray, O God, for wisdom and will, for courage to do and to become, not only to look on with helpless yearning as though we have no strength. That's why also we cannot come here to synagogue on these yamim noraim, these days of awe, and think that if we utter each word, each prayer in Hebrew or English in just the right way, God will respond favorably to us. That would be bribery. Rosh Hashanah is Yom Hadin, Judgment Day. One may not bribe judges. We must also commit ourselves to live our lives according to the values expressed in our prayers in order for them to have impact. The Hebrew word for bribery is a fascinating word. It's shochad, derived from the number echad, one, 
meaning to make one with you. The goal of bribing a judge is to make the judge one with you such that the judge will rule in your favor. The goal of prayer is shehu chad, to make us one with God so that we will live our lives with meaning, purpose, holiness, and godly ways. The very notion of prayer in our tradition reinforces this point. The Hebrew word to pray is lahit palel. It's a reflexive verb, meaning to judge oneself. As such, most of the prayers that we recite, says Rabbi Kushner, aren't meant for God's ear. They're meant for ours. God doesn't need our prayers. We need them. When done properly, prayer provides us with an opportunity for reflection and self-examination to consider who we are and what we aspire to become. Rabbi Michael Strassfeld, the famed author of the Jewish catalogs and more recently a book called Judaism Disrupted, puts it this way. Rather than requests of God, we might consider these as requests of ourselves. In what ways have we not lived up to our own values? The service then becomes a time for inner work on our spiritual and ethical qualities. We sit in reflection. Where are we spiritually? What can we leave behind from last week, from last year? What should we make a point of carrying forward into the new year? What can we celebrate? And what can we acknowledge can be done better going forward? Of course, the challenge is, how do we do that? How do we transform the traditional liturgy or parts of it to connect our prayers to the most important issues of our lives? That's the question we asked when we chose Va'ani Tefilati, connecting with the divine within us, as our theme for this year. The verse comes from Psalms, and it is recited on holidays before the open ark, just after the recitation of the 13 attributes of God's mercy and a personal meditation. It's also recited as the introduction to the Torah service during Shabbat Mincha. In full, it reads, Va'ani tefilati lecha, Adonai et ratzon, Elohim barov chastecha, eneni biemeti shecha. Our Maxor Lev Shalem translates it as, May this be an auspicious time, Adonai, for my prayer. God, in your abundant mercy, answer me with your faithful deliverance. More literal translation, though, would read, Va'ani and I, I am a prayer to you. The note in the Machsor understands that meaning as our lives may be seen as a prayer to God. In other words, when prayer inspires us to live meaningful lives, we become prayer. Consider again Unatana Tokif and its haunting question, who will live and who will die, in this context. It's not a petition or request for another year, it's a statement of fact. There are many things that may happen, that do happen, that will happen, that are beyond our control. 
Batshuva Tfila Utstaka Mavirin et Roa a return to values, prayer, and tzedakah can lessen the sting, the severity of bad things when they inevitably will come our way. Notice tefillah does not stand alone. Prayer must be accompanied by tshuva, by return to core values and beliefs, and to tzedakah, by an action that brings those values into the world. How we respond to what is not in our control is ultimately a measure of our character. When someone dies, are we a comfort? When someone is ill, do we visit and support the family? When when fires rage or floods flood, do we make a charitable gift, send clothing and supplies? The Russian war against Ukraine continues. Thousands of people are still leaving, including tens of thousands of Ukrainian and Russian Jews, and those who qualify to make Aliyah. Have we ensured our global Jewish communal organizations have the resources to rescue them? Each of the statements of Unatana Tokif is a challenge to our principles. And as one of my mentors taught me, principles only matter when they are challenged. It's easy to say we believe in something. It's much harder when we have to act on it. Look, in, look at the list of this prayer when we'll recite it in just a few moments and ask yourself in the year ahead, how might I be a ma'avir? How might I become this prayer and become one who lessens the suffering of someone else? Prayer changes the world through changing us, says Rabbi David Wolpe. It moves us to action. Praying pulls us closer to God and therefore toward what might be, what should be. When we open ourselves to the possibility of prayer to change us, then the amount of time we spend here over these yamim no ra'im is irrelevant. For we will live, leave here singing, va'ani tefilati lecha, and I, I am a prayer to you. For our lives will have become prayers to God, for which we can all say, Amen. Pico Ayer is a British essayist, and he wrote recently an article called The Trouble with Paradise. He's been a constant traveler, he writes, for 49 years, and sometimes he feels as if he's been zigzagging from one paradise to the next, from Tahiti to Tibet to Antarctica. He's found tourist posters conspiring with travelers' hopes to present every place as a kind of Eden. Yet often it's our very notions of paradise that intensify divisions. In Jerusalem, he writes like every other visitor. He'd been vividly reminded that the city of faith has always been a city of conflict. In Kashmir, he sat on a houseboat. He felt he was truly in heaven as long as he forgot that minutes across the water, army roadblocks and encampments spoke for the more than half a million soldiers trying to maintain peace in a barely contested territory. One day, he found himself standing amid the floating bodies and unceasing roar of the river Ganges in Varanasi, the holy city of Hinduism. As he surveyed the chaos, he heard someone call his name. It was an American monk that he knew would soon be appointed by the Dalai Lama 
to the abbot of a Tibetan Buddhist monastery in southern India. India. Isn't it, it glorious, he recalled him saying. Glorious? Well, it may take me a while to advance to that level of clear-sightedness. But if paradise is anywhere, he concludes, I was coming to see it couldn't be anywhere but where I stood. Hinane means simply, here I am. The Chazan reacts, or this, the Chazan recites it as a reminder that paradise is not to be found in some far-off place, but here and now, through the people inspired by his leadership, such that God is moved by our prayers. Page 140.